You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. We're going to look at Genesis uh, chapter 32 today. Let's stand for our sermon passage for today. Hear the word of the Lord. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord, in order that I might find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love, and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? Whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, 
for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. You may be seated. As we continue our sermon series through Genesis, we, of course, pick up where we left off with Jacob. Last week, we saw that he had successfully escaped the wrath of his uncle Laban. Remember, God safeguarded Jacob so that he and Laban ended up making a covenant of peace, of friendship between them. Jacob is now on the final leg of his return journey back home to the promised land. And now he comes to the time he has not been waiting for. He knows he will have to reunite with his brother Esau again. Remember, the whole reason Jacob left so many years before, the whole reason he left the promised land in the first place, was because of the fury of Esau. Esau wanted to kill Jacob because Jacob had stolen his father's blessing. As Jacob returns to the land of Canaan, this is the question that's before us as Esau's fury subsided. Will Esau greet and receive Jacob, or will he be out to destroy him? Jacob had escaped Laban's wrath, but would he now escape Esau's? This chapter serves as a bookend a bookend in Jacob's life with regard to his leaving the promised land and coming back. Remember back in Genesis chapter 28? That's when Jacob first is leaving, fleeing the promised land from Esau. Remember, at that time he was fleeing the promised land. He was going to go to Potamaran. But on the way out of town, at the location then later, or now known as Bethel, on the way out of town, God appears to Jacob there at Bethel has that amazing stairway to heaven, vision, dream. And that's when God assured Jacob that uh, he had God's blessing, that he would be kept by God, that God would keep him even as he left the promised land, but also he would eventually return to the promised land, that God would be with him and keep and and return him uh, back to the promised land. So that was at the beginning of leaving the promised land. God has this amazing theophany at Bethel to encourage Jacob as he left. And now this is the bookend of that. He's, he's, he's coming back now to the promised land. Now then, on his way back into town, into the promised land, God appears to him again and encourages him. Another theophany. That's why it's bookended, right? Two theophanies, one at the, as he's leaving and one as he's returning. Of course, the chapter is, is actually a little bit even more elaborate than that in terms of, of bookending with, with back in chapter 28 because the chapter here, it begins first with him encountering more angels of God. 
Remember the stairway to heaven had the angels on there, right? Here at the beginning of our chapter, the angels of God appear to Jacob. And it's then at the end of our chapter where Jacob has this theophany where he finds out he's wrestling with God. Of course, God ultimately blesses him there. So on the way out of the excuse me, yeah, on the way out of the promised land, he has this theophany with angels and a blessing. And now, and of course, what did he do? He named that place Bethel. Now, on the way back into town, he has again an experience of angels and theophany and blessing. And he actually names the two locations that this happens: uh, first Mahanaim and then Peniel. So God has protected him all this long way. Now as he's about to face Esau, will God continue to protect him? That's the question that Jacob is wrestling with here. Let's begin in our first point to see how Jacob fears Esau. And to see the actions that he takes because he fears Esau. I'll have us look at verses 3-8 through and then verses 13-21 through all together in this first point here. We see that first Jacob sends messengers ahead to Esau. In other words, he lets Esau know he's coming. He calls ahead, so to speak. Remember, they, they were moving as a big caravan, right? So they're only going to move so quick. So you can send a messenger ahead who's going to be able to move quicker and go and give a message and come back. So he calls ahead. He lets Esau know in that message he's not coming empty-handed. He comes back with livestock, with workers. His message is to speak... Uh, to seek favor with Esau, right? That's the point of the message here. He's letting you know, Jacob's letting you know Esau, he's coming, he wants to find favor in your sight. Notice even how his message speaks to Esau with the respective title of Lord. This is a way he would have shown respect. And so Jacob, you can say, commendably takes some initiative here to sort of seek a restored relationship with Esau. You could even see that there's some measure of repentance sort of implied in Jacob and how he interacts with, with Esau. And I think we'll see it even more next week in our, in our sort of part two to the same passage. But think about just sort of high level right now. Jacob had previously, right, he had tried to steal the blessing and also the birthright from Esau through that transaction with the bowl of soup. Think about the blessing for a moment. The blessing, one of the things the blessing included was that, that, that the one who was blessed would be in charge of the brothers who were under that, you know, so that, that in this case, Esau would have to be a servant of Jacob. That was in the blessing. But notice when, ja- when, when Jacob's coming here, he's calling himself Jacob the servant and Esau the Lord. You see how it's sort of a, a sort of act of repentance implied there in terms of Jacob's relationship with his brother. And then I, I think you can see a hint with the birthright too. Remember the birthright was really about getting a double portion of the inheritance. right? It's essentially a financial benefit. But as Jacob comes back, he comes back basically listing a bunch of wealth that he's coming back with. He doesn't mention anything uh, about coming back to collect an inheritance. He, you know, He's not coming back empty-handed looking for things to be given to him or to take, uh, he, he essentially uh, comes back um, you know, not empty-handed. Uh, so this is sort of the setup to Esau. 
And he, he gets this word back that Esau is, is not only coming out to meet Jacob, but he has these 400 men with him. And uh, you can understand Jacob's response. Verse, verse 7, he's terrified. He's afraid. Remember last week what Jacob told Laban? Jacob used that weird, not weird, um, out of the ordinary phrase to refer to God as the fear of Isaac. Remember Laban had received a vision, a dream that he was not to harm Jacob. And Jacob learns of that and you can't help but see Jacob referencing that when he keeps mentioning the fear of Isaac. In other words, Laban implied, don't, don't try to attack me because the fear of Isaac is on my side type of, type of implication. So Jacob really emphasizing how Laban had been afraid. Well, here it's really the opposite now. Now, Jacob has so many fears. Jacob is fearing Esau. And Jacob, you can't help but appreciate why he might have thought this, but Jacob assumes the worst when he hears Esau is coming with 400 men. That's no small number. And so we see Jacob's action to try to respond, uh, to prepare uh, for a potential conflict with him and Esau. He takes actions defensively to, to safeguard his house. He divides it up into two camps. Verse 7. It's a very practical matter if you think about it. Uh, and it, 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 It's described there in verse 8. If Esau attacks the one camp, then hopefully the other camp can get away. So divide them up. Defensive action. But then notice the other action that Jacob takes here. If that's a defensive action, sort of his other action is a sort of offensive action. What do I mean? He tries to propitiate, propitiate Esau. What I mean is he gives a huge present to Esau. Uh, it's there in, starting in verse 13. This long list of, of the gifts sounds kind of like the 12 days of Christmas, you know. All the gifts that are actually going to come one after another after another. Right? He, he, he divides them up in this rather dramatic way that he's going to present this one gift in really gift upon gift upon gift. And he personally instructs each drove of these presents to let Esau know this is from Jacob and he's coming soon. So that uh, his strategy with the gifts there is in verse 20 says that he would appease Esau with the presence. Which in the Hebrew, actually, the word appease there is, is, is literally the language of making atonement. Uh, that he'd make atonement before Esau. This idea of wanting to turn away Esau's wrath through this big gift. That's kind of an offensive action that Jacob takes here. He's got the defensive action of protecting his family, but an offensive action trying to, trying to propitiate uh, Esau and any potential fury and anger that remains. And so in this first point, we've seen Jacob's great fear of Esau. We see him taking these actions, and uh, these efforts that he takes are very practical. But if you think about his actions, they're also very much uh, similar to some of his, his character. You know, Jacob's, in some sense, continued effort to try to wrestle with Esau. Uh, you know, he's always trying to trying to do it himself in terms of how to, how to get ahead. 
Of course, we'll see Esau's perspective when they finally meet up. It's not going to be what Jacob feared. Uh, but for now, Jacob's not taking anything for granted. And so Jacob does do everything in his own practical wisdom and strength to position himself for survival. And I, and I just want to clarify, I'm not suggesting this was wrong for him to take practical steps. In fact, I think it's prudent. But I do want us to recognize it's sort of been his pattern in his life too, right? Always sort of wrestling first with Esau, then with Laban, and now here we are with Esau again. But that leads us into our second point. And it's such an important point. To see that then Jacob turns to pray to God for help. This is verses 9-13. through I just mentioned a moment ago, there was these common patterns in Jacob's life. Prayer like this, not one of his common patterns that we've seen. Not one. This is a commendable thing that we see Jacob finally praying a prayer like this. We, we could consider what he experienced there in verse 1 would have, would have all the more sort of encouraged him to, to pray a prayer like this. Maybe that's when he meets this camp of angels. You, re, you, you see the, that camp of angels again. If you're Jacob, your memory should remember back to Bethel. Right? And remember the stairway to heaven was actually stairway to and from heaven. Right? That was the point. Angels were going and coming both ways. And one of the points I, I reminded us of that sort of imagery shows that Jacob had an access to God. An access to heaven. One that I'm sure Jacob had not appreciated prior. As Jacob tended to be the kind of guy thinking really just earthly stuff. Always trying to maneuver the earthly. And so here he sees these angels. Of course, angels uh, in, the, in the Hebrew really is, is the word for messenger. Uh, they don't have any message though. There's not rec any recorded message that they give Jacob. But by him encountering them, you can't help but think of him remembering, there is an access that I have to God. Given Jacob's great fear of Esau, prayer would be quite appropriate at this point. And hopefully that's what these angels reminded him. He should go to God in prayer. And so that's in fact what Jacob does here. Let's consider what he says in this prayer. Notice all the praise that, that Jacob gives to God here. He references God's relationship with his forefathers, with Abraham, with Isaac. And what he's implying in those references is that God had been with Abraham and Isaac. God had been with his fathers. God had been faithful to his fathers. Had promised his fathers so many things and seen God faithful through those, those relationships. Those, think of all those covenant promises that have been now passed on to Jacob. Ones we've summarized repeatedly here as a people in place. And so Jacob then goes on to describe how God has shown him personally steadfast love and faithfulness the entire time, particularly on his journey out of the promised land and now coming back again. That was the emphasis at Bethel. God would be with him and bless him and keep him. And now he's seen that, he's acknowledging it. And now as he's coming back into the promised land... He, he, he's praying for that. Uh, he even mentions as one specific example of how God has blessed him, of how he went out with nothing, and now he's coming back so full 
that he can divide his camp into two. So he's really being specific on the on the on the praise. You know, if you're thinking about the parts of prayer, remember um, uh, Acts A C T S, right? This is the adoration part here. He's he's really praising God. Jacob's prayer is not a long one, but it is full of a lot of adoration. Jacob also expresses his humility in his prayer, another important aspect of prayer, humility. Verse 10, he says he's not been worthy of any of these blessings God has given him. Guess what? He's right. Very important. We're not worthy of any of the blessings God's given us either. Indeed, uh, how true this really is, if we think about Jacob's life, we've seen a lot of sins that he's committed over the, over the course of our studies. He's not earned uh, these blessings. And too often the problems he has faced are ones he's significantly contributed to in one way or another. Even now, think of his concern with Esau. Why is he having this concern about his brother Esau? Well, it's because of Jacob's own past sins. His fears are now sort of coming back to haunt him as his past. And Jacob's humility is also stated in his prayer when he says uh, he started out with nothing but his staff, uh, but now has, has come back. But he doesn't say, I've come back because I earned all this. No, he, he mentions how God has made him full. In other words, there's humility in, in, in seeing that change because he's saying, it wasn't me who brought this wealth, it was you who brought this wealth. He gives God the credit. Indeed, we should work hard, look to improve our circumstances, but when we see blessings, when we see uh, wealth of various sorts, fruit of various sorts, we should give God the glory in our prayer life. Well, then Jacob brings his very specific prayer request. I think of Acts, right? When you get to the ACTS, the S is supplication, big fancy word for prayer request. He brings his prayer request. And he, I love how he brings the prayer request and sort of connects it with the promises God has given. Right? It's not like a prayer request out of the blue. It's a prayer request in light of promises God has given. He, we, we sometimes call this praying the promises of God. Praying the promises of God. Sometimes I've heard it suggest you don't pray the promises of God. God's already promised you that. Why would you pray for that? And that might sound really compelling unless you read your Bible. Because you see God's people repeatedly praying the promises of God. And it's always... Put as a good thing. We pray the promises of God. In verse 9, uh, Jacob points out that it was God who told him to return to the promised land. That it was God who promised him good when he returns. He makes that same point at the end in verse 12. He mentions the covenant promises that have been given to Abraham and Isaac. That includes a promise of a great people, remember? How can he have a, prom- How can he have a great people if Esau comes and kills all his wife and wives and kids, right? This is all part of it, you see? And so his prayer request at the end of the day is ultimately simple. Deliver me, O Lord, from the hand of Esau. Jacob's very real with his uh, fear of his brother. He's very real before God. He doesn't try to hide uh, that he has this great fear. And I love that he prays not just for himself. O Lord, protect me from Esau. He prays, protect his his wives and the children. Jacob clearly loves his family. I think we'll see that again next passage as well. He loves the family the Lord has blessed him with, and he prays here fervently for their safety. It's a short prayer, but I do think the fervency comes out in it. 
So essentially, Jacob in his prayer here is appealing to God to be for his continued faithfulness. God has been faithful, has made these promises, and Jacob has seen God fulfilling them, and Jacob asks that God would continue that. I mean, realize these are promises that have stretched all the way back to Abraham. And arguably, of course, we know really all the way back to Adam, but, but particularly more recently and, and more specifically uh, back to Abraham. God had done all this when Abraham and Isaac, and now surely God wouldn't have done all of that, helped Abraham and, 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 and Isaac like that, and, and helped Jacob like he's helped them. God wouldn't have done all of that to just sort of abandon them here now, would he? Well, of course not. And God's promises would prove true. His plans would not fail. And yet God's plans for Jacob and his life includes this chapter, this moment, where where he allows Esau to wrestle in his heart with this fear so that he gets driven to pray like this. This is part of God's providence. Part of God's plan for Jacob's life. And it's this this prayer that shows Jacob acknowledging he can't save himself where he needed to get to all his life. He needs God to save him. And I hope you can all relate to such a prayer. We can't save ourselves. We need God to save us in Jesus Christ. May Jacob's prayer spur each of us to continue in such a prayer ourselves to the Lord. Let's turn then in our third point to consider Jacob's wrestling with God. What a section of Scripture here. This is verses 22-32. through Just before Jacob meets Esau, Jacob finds himself up at night still trying to protect his family. He settles them in a, as safe a way as he can. And then he finds himself not only alone, but awake. You could imagine maybe he was having trouble sleeping. That's when God appears to him in theophany again. He appears, on a side note, as the angel of the Lord. And that's not told us specifically in this passage, but Hosea chapter 12 recounts this event. And we see in Hosea 12:4 that this was the angel of the Lord that wrestles Jacob here. And we know from this passage, this is God in some actual manifestation. We've suggested even that the angel of the Lord might in fact be the second person of, of the Trinity. Uh, so uh, revealing himself in different ways in the Old Testament here. And this is certainly another data point along that way of thinking. But Jacob meets this mysterious figure. The text even puts it as a man first, right? He meets this man, and he wrestles with Jacob. Presumably at first, Jacob doesn't even realize it was the Lord. He asked the man his name at the end, only to receive an answer that implied that he did know who it was. In fact, uh, what Jacob will go on to say shows at some point he comes to the right conclusion that he was wrestling God. But we don't know exactly when he all figured that out. Of course, isn't that Jacob's life? 
really up to this point, he's been wrestling with God and not realizing it, not recognizing it was God that he's really been wrestling with. I think that is what Jacob ultimately has been doing all his life. So we have this strange episode of God wrestling Jacob all night long. As if this alone wasn't strange enough, right? I mean, if I just had put a period right there, that would have been strange, right? But then notice some of the particularly peculiar details of this whole event. The language here describes that somehow God could not prevail over Jacob in the wrestling. That somehow Jacob and his tenacity won't give up, won't yield to God in the wrestling. This mysterious man, who is God, tells Jacob to let him go, but Jacob won't unless he blesses him. Some interesting, peculiar details if we think about it. I mean, are we to understand that a mere man like Jacob could literally overpower God in a wrestling match? Well, the context does give us a little hint. At the end of the conflict, God merely touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of joint. That tells you something more than the surface-level details here is going on. Something more is going on than simply Jacob wrestling some man and Jacob winning. There's something certainly more going on here that this man after that could just tink. So, let's, let's make a, a point I think is, is, is beyond dispute. Surely, clearly, no man can outmatch God. If Jacob wins this match, it's frankly because God lets him win. If that at all seems strange, I'm sure probably one of you wrestled one of your kids at one point and let them win. But at the end, we see injured Jacob clinging to this adversary, who's also his advocate. And God declares that Jacob has overcome, verse 28. That Jacob has striven, not just with God, he has striven with God and with men, and prevailed. Here's what I believe is going on here. This whole wrestling. I think God is using it as a sort of picture to teach and encourage Jacob. It's almost like God has Jacob wrestle him as a sort of living parable. Remember, it's not the first time that we see something like that in the Bible where, where God has parables acted out by prophets. The prophets essentially are told, act this out, and it's something that has a message to communicate. There can be parables that are just told, but there are cases where parables are acted out. And what happens in this wrestling match, it really tells us what's been happening in Jacob's life all along. He has been wrestling with God all his life. And of course, he's been wrestling with men all his life too. And in fact, his wrestling here with God really has a lot of echoes back in the beginning of, 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 of the first time we see Jacob wrestling. Remember the first time we see Jacob? Where was it? It was in the womb. <laughs> Rhetorical question. <laughs> but yes, in the womb, right? In the womb, in the dark. Right, wombs are dark, as far as I'm aware of. Uh, he's wrestling with Esau in the womb. 
All his life after that, we see Jacob wrestling with men, first with Esau, then with Laban. And now as he returns, he starts wrestling again with Esau. At least that's sort of his positioning himself to do that. But even from the beginning in the womb, God had already promised Jacob great things. If Jacob were but to trust God, to stop trying to fight everyone to get ahead, things surely would have gone so much better for Jacob in his life. At least easier, maybe that's the, better, that's the word to say. Because God's will is best, of course. But it would, outwardly speaking, it would have gone a lot easier for him if he had just stopped trying to, trying to fight everyone to get ahead. And so here Jacob wrestles with the Lord, and we realize that's actually that's who he's actually been wrestling with this entire time all his life. Instead of trusting God's promises and living in faith in light of those promises. And yet here in this wrestling match, God tells Jacob something that might startle you at first, that Jacob has wrestled with God and men and prevailed. How has Jacob prevailed? Again, think of this wrestling match like a a real-life parable acted out. All his life of wrestling with God and man, how has Jacob finally prevailed? Now at last, how has Jacob prevailed? I actually think we already studied it. It's in our second point for today. Remember what the second point was? It was when Jacob prayed to God. It's when, think about it, we've never seen Jacob pray a prayer like this before. Never. He finally confesses his own personal inability to save himself. He, in that prayer, expresses his complete dependence upon God. He cannot do this. That's where Jacob needed to get to in his spiritual maturing. This literal wrestling match with God Help to see that the path to victory in life is to recognize you can't do it on your own strength. We all need to look to the overwhelming power of God who can but tink. The overwhelming power of God to save us and bless us. So too in this wrestling match as he clings injured to the Almighty God who but touched him. He clings to him and asks, I I really read plead here, bless me. Finally, this is the thing Jacob's needed to seek. You know, we go back to long before how much he needed in his mind his father Isaac to bless him. Really all he's ever needed is God to bless him. If God blessed him, that's all that really would have mattered. And so he asks God to bless him, and and he does. But notice the first thing God does before it says, and he blessed him, is that God gave him a new name. And I actually think this is the beginning of the blessing. Includes the new name. God switches his name from Jacob to Israel. Remember the name Jacob meant grasps. 
And, and that name reflected his old man. It reflected Jacob as the grasper, the one always trying to grab hold of other things that belong to other humans and to try to take it himself. His whole life had been a wrestling of men. But now, what does his new name mean? Israel means strives with God. Obviously, it reflects what just happened here in this passage. But there's a sense here that Jacob, as he leaves that wrestling match with God, that he sort of leaves in a sort of new birth. Remember, he wrestles with Esau in the womb, and is born, is given the name Jacob. Now he wrestles with God in the dark, and in the break of, of day, he's given the new name Israel. He starts out his new life back in the promised land. Our text, of course, ends with Jacob limping away from his encounter with God. Of course, it's God's grace that Jacob would be able to limp away. It might sound funny to think about, but, but think about it. If he had not known God, or more so been known by God, he wouldn't even be limping away. I mean, Jacob himself recognizes that verse 30 he rejoices that he has so seen God and yet lived. How could any sinful human like Jacob or any of us see God and live? Of course, we know the answer, don't we? Jesus Christ. Let me make sure you heard the question again. How could any sinful human like Jacob or any of us see God and live? The answer is Jesus Christ. Jacob's greater son, Jesus, would one day be born, go to the cross to atone for both Jacob and our sins. You know, Jacob had hoped that his gift here would propitiate Esau's wrath. But Jesus' sacrifice truly atones for the sins of all God's chosen people, including Jacob's, including ours turn away God's wrath from us. If you believe on Him, know that your sin has been forgiven. Look to Jesus in faith as the propitiation for your sin. Know that that is our salvation it turns God's wrath away, and know what it means for us in the future. Ultimately, we will see the face of God and live forever. This is our great Gospel right here. Think further with me on the cross of Jesus. Jesus also bore on His body the marks of His encounter with God at the cross. During... His earthly ministry, of course, Christ certainly wrestled with many humans, but ultimately Christ wrestled with God in our place. Even as God's wrath was poured out upon Him on the cross, think about what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't just curse God and die. No, He clung to God even in His final breath to secure a blessing, a blessing for us, so that we would have eternal life. And it left Jesus scarred. And so while the Israelites memorialized Jacob's wrestling with God by not eating the sinew of the thigh, 
We memorialize Christ wrestling on the cross by eating of the Lord's Supper. And I hope as we look forward to next week, as we come again next week to the Supper, that we've been given a week to be thinking about this. To remember the wrestling of Christ for our salvation in advance of that Supper next week. Let us consider the ways we've wrestled with man and God. Let us look to trust afresh in God and His promises. Let us stop trying to fight God's good plan for us. To find our peace in resting in the blessings of God that we have in Jesus. And let's especially express that through prayer. That's something to fill our week with this week in advance in, in our prayer life in light of all of this uh, that we learn here today, that we would have a prayer life that says, Lord, I need you every hour. That's our prayer this week. In all our life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do acknowledge that we need you every hour. We do confess how prone we are to wrestle against man and against you, and yet your way is right and good and true. We should not resist Your way, but, but cling to it always. Thank You that You have given us a blessing in Jesus. True Son of Israel, help us to each be a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Lord, be one that we would be one who walks in truth, trusting always on the finished work of Jesus Christ for our sake. And so we pray together in the name of our Lord Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.